find a podcast where you'll hear the truth and we will praise jesus name we stand for the bible and won't back down from it although it don't bring much fame some folks will like it some will try to deny it but god's word will always stand true Tried in the fire, still good in Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King. And I'm the host of this study, Donnie King. This is Monday, September the 12th, episode number 81, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelations chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. On this podcast, we study the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, how it was translated into English in the King James Version. In our last study, Brother Donnie and Brother Chris Lee dug into a subject that is plaguing the church today. There has ever been a time that God's people needed to stand up and defend the word. It is right now. They looked into what resting the scriptures is, why it is wrong to rest the scriptures, and how it leads to destruction. They explained what context is and why it truly matters. These episodes were certain to grab your attention, but we hope more than anything it will speak to your heart. In today's episode, we begin our study of one of the most controversial books in our Bibles. This book has been avoided, misinterpreted, and misunderstood more than nearly every other scriptural book. Yeah, by now, you have probably already guessed Revelation. Our intent is not so much to go through the book of Revelation to land on a certain end-time belief system. We believe that there is way too much that has been overlooked in this powerful book because of everyone's focus on the things concerning the end times. We hope to change this for you in this study. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today. I'll turn it to the host of this podcast, Brother Donnie King. Well, we're excited that you're with us today, and we're hoping that this will be a very interesting book study for you. We certainly are looking forward to it, and we might as well get started. What do you say? Yes, let's do it. Well, I'm proud to announce that our new book study will be on the book of Revelation. I also want to say something that I'm afraid is going to be disappointing to many of you in the audience. This study in Revelation that we're going to do will not be focused mainly upon the end times. Now, we're going to bring to you many aspects of the book of Revelation that most people gloss over, that they kind of just skim over while they read this powerful book. Of course, doing a study of the book is going to include some things that are to do with the end time. There's no way you could study the book of Revelation and not do that. I just want to let everyone know up front, this is not my purpose to establish an end time doctrine. It's worth mentioning that many scholars claim that the book of Revelation has no direct quotation from the Old Testament within it. But on the same hand, the book of Revelation has more allusions to the Old Testament than any other New Testament book. In other words, John didn't quote many, if any, text word for word, but he did reference portions of many verses from the Old Testament. There are many different things that I want to point out that a lot of people fail to see in the book of Revelation because nearly everybody who studies the book of Revelation reads chapters 1, 2, and 3, chapter 13, and chapter 21. Now, I know there's some that read the whole book and that study the whole book, but most people you hear preach out of the book of Revelation are going to preach about the seven churches of Asia. They're going to preach about the mark of the beast, or they're going to preach about there being no tears in heaven. That's the depths of the knowledge of some people who go to church. 
Nearly everyone is either a scholar concerning the end times, or if not that, they are intrigued by revelation, desiring to know what will happen in the end times. Believe this or not, the book of Revelation is not just a book about the end of time. Now, I can assure you we're going to look at several points concerning the end, but we will not be promoting a particular system in this study, not because I'm afraid to tell anyone what I do believe, but my whole purpose of teaching this book is to point out the things that most people fail to see or fail to bring out. Now, together, we're going to see many likenesses between the book of Revelation and the book of Exodus, while many other books are going to come alive to us, such as Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and many, many more. We might as well go ahead and get started and read the first four verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to shew unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent it and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. I want to point out four key words in the first three verses. In verse 1, we read of the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, we see that John bore record of the word of God. Again, in verse 2, we read that this is the testimony of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, we read that this book is a prophecy. This tells us a lot about the book just starting out. It's a revelation. That means it's God-given. John bore record. That means that he stood good for everything that he says here. And it's the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's very important. And then verse 3 tells us that this is a prophecy. This is something that God gave him of things that would come to pass. I want to look at each of those words for just a little bit and kind of give us a little more of an understanding of what's being said here. Revelation is divine knowledge that's given to humans by God. This knowledge can come through dreams. It can come through visions. It can come through a written text. It can come from the mouth of God. It can be handed down by angels. Prophets can tell about it and so on. You see what we're getting at. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we see how revelation has evolved through the years. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. God used to speak through visions and dreams unto prophets, and then the prophets would speak to the people of God. When the prophet spoke to the people of God, it was as if the mouth of God, the oracles of God, was given straight through the man of God. But now we have seen that through the years when Jesus came on the scene, there's no need of another prophet speaking to us because now God speaks to us, but it's through his son. Now, it's because of this that I believe in what is known as progressive revelation. That means that God's mind, God's will, and God's plan becomes more evident to his people as time goes on. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I believe that Adam knew something about God, but I believe that Noah knew more about God than Adam did. Now, as much as Noah knew about God and he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, we know that Abraham knew God much better than Noah did. Abraham was called the friend of God, but yet even though as he was the friend of God, Moses knew God in a deeper way 
than Abraham ever did. Moses is the one that God spoke to face to face. But even despite that, David had a greater knowledge of God than even Moses had, for David was a man after God's own heart. And on and on we could go talking about all of these different things, but each person in each generation has that much more knowledge of God. Do you know why Abraham had more knowledge of God than Noah and Adam did? Because he had Adam's knowledge and Noah's knowledge added to his knowledge. Do you know why David had a better understanding of God than Abraham and Moses did? Because David had the knowledge of Moses, the knowledge of all of those others along with him, along with what David knew about God firsthand. So then we come to the New Testament and the disciples, they knew Jesus firsthand. They begin to speak with him. They begin to learn more about him and they begin to tell about him. And then we have the apostle Paul who comes on, who had many revelations from God of his own. And then he knew what the other disciples and apostles had taught. And so he had a greater knowledge than even just one of the disciples did. He had a combined knowledge. But guess what? Today, we have the knowledge of Adam, Noah, Moses, David, and all the way down to the 12 apostles, all the way down to Apostle Paul, and even some things that Jesus said in the Gospels themselves. So we have greater knowledge today than what they had in those days. Well, before you start thinking, oh, wow, he's building us up pretty big. No, 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 no. Don't misunderstand me because where much is given, much is also required. If we have that much more knowledge, we have absolutely no excuse of why we don't believe in him or why we don't live right. A revelation is a revealing or a making known of something. It's how God reveals himself and how he manifests himself to mankind. Now, this is different than someone just composing a letter or writing an interesting story to someone. A revelation is much more powerful than someone just penning a letter to a friend. The full authority of God stands behind this. Notice that this is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice that John didn't call it a revelation of Jesus Christ. I have known several preachers through the years who will advise people not to read the book of Revelation. As a young Christian, I was told by my pastor, do not read the book of Revelation. Whatever you do, read anything else. Well, you know what I did, don't you? I went home and I began reading the book of Revelation. I had no idea what I was reading. I read about this lamb that was a lion and I read about this dragon coming up out of the sea. And I'm telling you, it terrified me. I didn't understand it. I understand a little bit about why he was saying don't read it. But yet again, I wonder if some of them are afraid that somebody might catch a glimpse of Jesus in this because the whole book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It isn't that there's something bad in it, that there's something that you shouldn't read, that it'll mess your mind up. It's that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everyone needs to read this. The first word says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. He gave it to his servant, these things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John. Then it says, John, bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. So John is standing good for everything that God revealed to him. This right here is powerful in itself. In the first three verses, we see revelation, bearing record, testimony, and prophecy. All four of these are very, very important. We've looked at Revelation a little bit, but now I want to look at barren record. 
To bear record is to give evidence of something. It's to give an honest report, a testimony now. That is a witness by someone who has first-hand knowledge of a situation. It also comes from the same root word that martyr does, and it implies that the person who will testify should be willing to die for their testimony. John is telling us this is the testimony of Jesus Christ, and John was bearing record of this testimony. In other words, John is letting it be known, I'm willing to die for what I say that's going to be recorded in this book. I'm putting my life on the line. God help us. I wonder how many of us would do that. Now, most of us know what prophecy is. Prophecy is inspired utterances. It means to foretell something, and it means to be shown something by God. This book contains all of these things and much more, and it sets the tone for the remainder of the book. These first three verses really open up what's fixing to be happening throughout the remainder of the book. And if you can't understand the first three verses, then you're going to have a hard time understanding the rest of the book. But if you can understand these first three verses, it gives you an idea of which way the book is going to go and how to understand it. And verse three, John tells us that we're blessed in three different ways with this revelation. He says, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. He said, it's near to us right now. We need to know this. We need to understand this. So he said, you're going to be blessed in these three different ways. Did you catch all three of them? He said, we are blessed by reading this. You will be blessed by reading the book of Revelation. John said, you will be blessed. That's exactly what he said. Blessed is he that readeth. Then he goes on and says, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, we're blessed by hearing it. If you don't get a chance to read it and someone reads it to you, you're blessed by hearing it. In other words, you're going to be blessed by knowing what's in this book. Then the third thing is we are blessed by keeping it. Not only should we read it, not only should we hear it, we should keep it, keep it within our heart, keep it in our lifestyle, keep it close to us keep it in our mind. Now, one of the reasons that people will tell you not to read the book of Revelation is because they want you to believe their particular end time doctrine or theology. They're afraid if you read the book of Revelation, you may begin to think for yourself or think like other people. And a lot of churches want to keep a monopoly on what their people believe. If you go to a church that believes in post-trib, they want you to believe post-trib. If you go to a church where they believe pre-trib, they want you to believe pre-trib. If you go to a church where they're mid-trib, they want you to believe mid-trib. So don't fear what everybody might say or what everybody might think. Read it, hear it, and keep it. Now, the question this brings to my mind is this. Will we keep this that we are reading and this that we're hearing and be blessed? Will we do that? John establishes the fact that he is writing this letter to the seven churches of Asia in verse 4. He also adds that the seven spirits before the throne sends a salutation as well. Let's read verses 4 through 8. It's pretty interesting. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. That's very interesting. He gives a salutation from himself from the one which is, which was, and which is to come. And then the salutation is extended from the seven spirits which are before the throne. (laughs) 
that's interesting enough. And there's more than we'll be able to dive off into in just that verse. But let me read the other few. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Even so, amen. Now we have words in red. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Now, he tells us in verse 4 that he received this revelation. Who is he? Well, it's John. John received this revelation. Who did he receive it from? From him which is, from him which was, and from him which is to come. Now, I want you to just pause and just take a moment and think about this question I'm going to ask you. Who do you believe this is speaking of? Is this speaking of God the Father? Is this speaking of Jesus Christ? Is this speaking of one of the seven spirits? Is this the angel that's given the revelation to John? Who is this? The wording, him which is, which was, and which is to come, is very telling to me. This is the declaration of which no Jew would have misunderstood who John was claiming to have heard this revelation from and received this revelation from. There's only one who fits the bill for this description. Now, I want you to listen to these key phrases in verses 4 through 8. From him which is, and which was, and which is to come. And from Jesus Christ. And then the phrase, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. What makes this so interesting is we have phrases that makes you think it's got to be Jesus Christ, And then we have phrases that makes you think, well, it's got to be God the Father. So there's a little bit of confusion here. And a lot of people argue over whether there should be some of this in red or whether all of it should be in red, except for what John specifically says, or if it's the Father speaking. So let's dig in just a little bit and see what we can come up with. The mind of any Jew who would be reading this would immediately go back to the book of Exodus, and they would connect this statement with what God told Moses at the burning bush. In Exodus 3 and 13 through 15, let's see what it says. Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers have sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. There's a lot to process within these three verses, but listen to some of these key phrases within this. Moses is speaking unto God, and he asks, who do I tell them sent me? And the Lord says, the God of your fathers has sent you. He said, but what do I say when they ask, what is his name? And God said, I am that I am. He said, I am has sent me unto you. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's the one who has sent me. And then he makes a statement, says, this is my name forever. This statement from God to Moses and then on from Moses to the children of Israel speaks of the existence of God. 
And in it, God declares that he just is, okay? It's not giving a description of him. He's just saying, I exist. Not only does he exist now, he existed then, but he has been from eternity past, and he will be all the way through eternity future, for he will be forever. He said, this is my name forever. It won't ever change, but I will always be here. This means that God is him which is, which was, and him which shall be. Do you see that? The one that spoke to Moses from the burning bush is the one which is, I am, and he's the one which has been, which was, and we've seen that here in the same portion of Exodus 3, and then we see the promise that he's going to be the same one in the future. I am he which shall be. (laughs) How do you think John would have tried to convince his Jewish audience that his revelation he got was true? He told them that he'd been given a revelation from the same one who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. We don't see that normally when we read it in the English and we just skim through it. We look over it. We quickly buzz through that, getting to chapter two, seeing what God says to the seven churches. But listen to what he said to John and what John is claiming. John's claiming that he heard from the one that was in the burning bush. That is very significant. If we overlook that, what else are we going to overlook throughout the remainder of this book? When their minds went back to the declaration that was given at the burning bush, they would also remember that God told Moses he was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, this further proves that John was making a claim to have been given this revelation straight from God himself, because only God has ever used that phrase before. He used it several times in the Old Testament. This showed the power of this revelation that John had received. It also shows the urgency of this revelation. But one more thing, it shows the seriousness of the revelation. If God the Father gave this revelation, we better take it serious. If God the Father gave this revelation, there is a sense of urgency in it. And if God the Father gave this to John, there's some power that's within this that we need to tap into. Now, I'm sure that you all remember the angel of the Lord concept from the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord appeared at many different places, and he spoke as if he was God. He spoke for God. He did things only God could do. He actually was able to pardon and forgive sins. He was able to do most anything that we read that God could do but yet he's called the angel of the Lord. Sometimes we find him holding a sword. Sometimes we find him in many various ways. But the angel of the Lord concept from the Old Testament, we know today as Christophanes and as Theophanes. That tells us that one of the members of the Godhead would take on this human form, and the writers of the Old Testament had no other way of describing what they saw, so they called this being an angel. And then they would call it the angel of the Lord because they didn't know how to describe because they felt like God was in heaven, but this being had powers that only God could have. They didn't think that God could come in the flesh, but yet they would call him the angel of the Lord. This right here is brought into the New Testament. You don't see it much through most of the Gospels or Paul's writing, but right here in the book of Revelation, we see this concept carried on into this. Did you know that it's found here in the New Testament as well in the book of Revelation? Did you ever catch that? Revelation gives us a good example of what angelomorphic Christology is. Now, most of the time, you don't see that 
after the resurrection of Christ. All of that was before he came at Bethlehem and especially before the resurrection. But here in the book of Revelation, it's a little different. Some of these things are going to take you back to that particular angel who in reality was God, who was with Israel during their wanderings in the wilderness. This is the angel who led the Israelites through the wilderness, who caused them to receive bread from heaven that tasted like honey. We know that this is tied together with God being in human form. Well, now let's just think for a moment. Is there a scripture in the New Testament that talks about God being in human form? Oh, yes, there is, isn't there? The Bible talks about Jesus in 1 Timothy 3 and 16 and says that he was God manifest in the flesh. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. We understand that this is speaking of Jesus Christ, God in human form. The angel of the Lord would take on human form in the Old Testament. So we really have something that we need to dig into. And if you've never done a study on that, I highly encourage you look up what a Christophany is and look at all of the Christophanies and Theophanies in the Old Testament. And I believe you'll see a great picture of what Christ would be when he came in the flesh. And Revelation chapter one, verses one through two it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gave unto him. Okay. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Is this speaking that God gave this revelation to Jesus Christ? Then it says, he gave it to him to shew unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Whose servants? Jesus's or the Father's? Well, I think that could work for either, but yet it's specifying a particular person, his servants, not their servants. It says he sent and signified it by his angel, who is the he that sent and signified it, and whose angel? Unto his servant, John. So now we have John distinct from all of this that's been said prior to this. Then it says, John, who bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. As this what John saw or what Jesus Christ saw when God gave him the revelation? <laughs> if you're not confused yet, hang on. You probably will be. No, seriously, I'm hoping to bring some clarity to this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, is the him, Jesus, or John. It definitely appears that God gave Jesus this revelation to show his servants what would soon come to pass. He sent and signified the revelation by his angel. But who is the he who sent and signified this? To me, it seems to be God the Father who sent the revelation because he's the one who gave it to Jesus. He signified it by his angel. Now the question becomes, whose angel? God's angel or Jesus's angel? And keeping with the thought pattern, if God is the one who sent it, it would have to be God who signified it by his angel. God's angel is the one who gave this revelation to his servant, John, and the revelation is about Jesus Christ. When it says his servant, John, it is the disciple who was with Jesus when he was here on earth. No matter which way you come at this, it appears that this is saying Jesus could be this angel that gave the revelation to John because Jesus is the one who was given the revelation by God, but it says the angel gave it to John. If the revelation is of Jesus Christ, it just makes sense that if Jesus gave John the revelation, 
that God gave to him, Jesus would have to be the angel that is being referred to here. (laughs) Could it be that God gave the information to Jesus and actually sent Jesus as the angel of the Lord, as he did many times in the Old Testament? It's difficult to say yes, and it's hard to say no. We'll look a little more into this in our next study, if the Lord be willing. Very good teaching, Brother Donnie. Appreciate that lesson. Got a question here for you today, sent in. Okay, what do we got? The question is, what made the writer of Hebrews call Esau a fornicator in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 16? That is a wonderful question, and I have wondered that through the years myself. I did a little bit of a study on it uh, about two, maybe three years ago, and it's very interesting because there's not a lot of information concerning this. Let me read you this passage, and then we'll go around and look and see what we can find. All right. Follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And here in verse 16 is the verse to which we're looking at. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. So right here, it appears that Esau is called a profane person and a fornicator. So now he's being made an example. We know that for sure. Let's list some things that we know that he was guilty of and that did happen in his life. We know that somehow he didn't love God enough to hold on to his birthright. He would rather fill his belly than to keep his birthright, and so he gave that up. We realized that there were some things about his life that displeased his parents. He liked women that his parents did not want him to like. He ended up marrying some of those. So we realized that there were some things with Esau that wasn't quite right. But we are left to wonder, what does this mean by him being a fornicator here? Is it possible that he committed spiritual adultery by not loving God? Is that what it's referring to? Is it possible he was committing fornication with those strange women that he was seeing? Is it possible that he was committing idolatry, which is the form of spiritual adultery that could be called fornication, by choosing to fill his belly more than he desired to be blessed by God? I believe that all of these are possibilities, but yet we still don't know. Was he really a fornicator? Did he actually commit fornication with a woman or did he commit fornication against God? It's kind of hard to answer that question completely because there's a lack of information in the word of God. Now, fornication is a description of how Esau prostituted his relationship with God. That much is pretty much certain. Through his apostasy, he prostituted his relationship with God. He was of the children of Israel. He was one of the people of God in his day, but he didn't regard that status and he cared less about it. And so he walked away from God into apostasy and did not follow God. So it's possible that this is the fornication the writer's talking about. And I want to give you a few scriptures to think on just to allow this to soak into your mind and see if it makes sense to you. Deuteronomy 31 and 16 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whether they go to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Now, we understand by this setting that these people literally weren't going to go see whores, and that's what God was talking about. He was talking about they were going to follow and worship other gods, which God called whoring. God is in relationship with Israel in the Old Testament, the same as the man and a woman is in a marriage covenant. 
And so for Israel to worship another God would be the same as the wife leaving her husband and going out having an illicit affair with another man. Genesis 26, verse 33 through 35. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mine unto Isaac and to Rebekah. Here's that portion that I was talking about that may point to an actual case of fornication that he committed in the physical sense. I also want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and read a very familiar portion of Scripture here. Verse 18, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Now, could it be possible by the wording there in Hebrews 12 that fornication has nothing to do with Esau? Now, hang on to your hat. I know you weren't ready for that because there's possibilities that he did commit fornication with these women in Genesis 26. There's also the possibility that fornication is speaking of his spiritual relationship with God. Both of those are possibilities, but I want to throw another possibility at you. Let's go back to 12 and 16 of Hebrews and allow me to show you something. Could it be possible by the wording here that fornication has absolutely nothing to do with Esau? Only the part where it says a profane one may be referring to Esau. Now, before you throw me under the bus, let's go there. Lest there be any fornicator, comma, or profane person, which is showing a distinction. Okay, you're having to make a distinction there. There are two different things. You can't have both. So lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau. We know the profane person is linked to Esau because it says as Esau. But the fornicator could be referring to Esau, but the way it's worded almost makes you think that he's not talking about Esau as a fornicator, but he's the profane person and Esau's name comes up here. And then what he did comes afterwards. All right. I know there's a lot of people that base verse 15 off of what Esau did. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Esau failed of the grace of God. He sold his birthright. Then a root of bitterness sprung up and troubled him. Thereby many be defiled. They say that's exactly what happened in the book of Genesis. Esau got mad at Jacob. And so that root of bitterness troubled him and ruined his family. That's very possible that all of this is connected to him. But by the wording and by the English language in our KJV and even into the Greek, we have that word or, which can be a separation. So in final answer, it may not even be talking about Esau, but if it is, it must have been either a physical relationship that he had with those two women that were listed in Genesis 26, 33 through 35, or it's speaking solely of his relationship with God. All right. Brother Donnie, it was a great answer. Friends, if you have a Bible question you'd like an answer to, send us an email, dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We want to encourage you to send your questions to us, and you'll certainly get a biblical answer back. We hope you've enjoyed our podcast today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. We invite you to come back Friday for special edition number 47. Have we forgotten what it's all about? I think you'll enjoy it. So I can keep my soul feeling free. I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord, for the gospel's sake. Where I go, you've already been there. Cause I'm walking in Jesus' name. Well, I'm walking in Jesus' name. I'm going where he bid to go. <laughs>
Dancing and talking like he wants me to He's a keeper of my soul I have learned to lean on Jesus And cast on him my ever concern I'm looking for a home in glory Where no sorrow will